Chris Campbell with the Food Institute, and welcome back to the Food Institute podcast. This week, we welcome Nathan Pratt, a nutrition scientist and strategic content manager for Cary Health and Nutrition Institute, who just so happens to have a PhD and is also a registered dietitian. And these things will come in handy as we're asking a very important question today on the podcast, and that simply put is, how healthy is plant-based? But before we jump in, I wanted to take a moment to thank the sponsor for today's episode, and that would be Kerry Group. Kerry is the world's leading taste and nutrition partner for the food, beverage, and pharmaceutical markets. They innovate with their customers to create great tasting products that feature improved nutrition and functionality while fostering a better impact on the planet. Their leading consumer insights, global RDNA team of 1,100 plus food scientists, and extensive global footprint enable them to solve their customers' complex challenges using differentiated solutions. At Kerry, they are driven to be their customers' most valued partner, creating a world of sustainable nutrition, and will reach over 2 billion consumers with sustainable nutrition solutions by 2030. And for more information, you can visit kerrygroup.com, and you can also click the link in the description of this episode to learn more. So, with that all out of the way, we welcome Nathan to the show, and we'll start off by asking him how he's doing today. So, how are you, Nathan? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing very well myself. We got springtime up here in the Northeast, so it's feeling nice to kind of thaw out a little bit. But what I'd like to do is just jump right in. I think that this is a really important topic. But to give people a better idea of who you are, could you share a little bit about your career background before we jump into this really important question? Sure. So uh, my background, obviously, is in nutrition. Um, Specifically, I did my PhD in more of studying nutrition behavior, and I'm also a registered dietitian, so I can dive into that a little bit. So um, I've always had an interest in nutrition, and I love learning about science, but my favorite piece of it is always, like, how do we bring the science to life? So a good example I like to use is the dietary guidelines. We know what's been healthy for decades. They don't change a whole bunch, but What does change is how we can make it easier for people to achieve those dietary guidelines, uh, make it easier for them to understand science. So that's really where my passion lies is in science communication and understanding behavior and how we can make healthy choices easier for them. And I think that's a good segue into the first question I want to ask. And I think you're right. Nutrition hasn't changed too much, but I think consumer perceptions on what healthy is are the things that change pretty rapidly and pretty quickly in the food industry. And I know the title, the working title we have for this episode is How Healthy is Plant-Based? And I think I want to start there because I think the consumer perception really is that it is a healthier alternative. But I think if you take a look at some of the uh, you know studies out there, it might not be so clear cut. So what do we do? What do we do with this kind of information? I think we could start there, taking a look at just you know overall. What do you think about plant based that really makes it resonate with consumers with this health halo? Can we start there? Yeah, definitely. I think it's definitely a loaded question. Just thinking about consumer drivers for plant based, you know, it is a monumental trend in our industry, and it's really kind of changing the way we look at food. If you think about sustainability and and all of those ties into plant based. So I think you have a few different motivations, and I think what we're all trying to figure out as the human race is how do we feed our growing population with the one planet Earth we have, because we know that we can't just keep doing what we're doing. So plant-based is essential for that. So I think that you have that motivation of playing into why we see such rapid growth in plant-based. Like We know that we need to reduce our consumption of animal-based foods animal foods like meat and dairy and kind of shift those intakes toward plants due to the sustainability piece. But then you kind of have the 
the path forward. So we know that everyone is trying to save the planet basically with this, but then you also have those sub motivations that affect us day to day. So you have taste, novelty, nutrition. And I think there are a few different drivers. What we see at Cary whenever we do consumer research is health and nutrition are usually the number one motivation for that, which I love to hear as a nutrition scientist. Um, it kind of surprised me when I saw it because I thought it would be mostly for novelty, but especially for plant-based dairy, health and nutrition are the number one driver for why people choose plant-based. And we've shown that consistently over a few studies over the years. The newest one we have coming up will be in an ebook published soon called Stepping Up Taste and Plant-Based. And we found like within the current market for plant-based meat alternatives, the benchmark is beef, but better. So people want everything that beef is offering taste-wise and, and eating-wise, but they want it to be better nutrition, better for the environment. So there are some really high expectations, which I'm sure a lot of listeners working in the food industry know that it is really hard to check all those boxes, especially as this trend builds steam and kind of get some more uh, expertise behind it as we go. And that's interesting. You know, one of the things I've been pretty open about this on the podcast, but those who don't know, I actually switched to a vegetarian diet at the beginning of the year. And as far as that matrix goes, when you're taking a look at beef, but better, I think producers are getting closer and closer for that taste profile. Um, it's not exactly 100% yet, I don't think, but I do think they're getting closer. But when you take a look at the other side of that coin, do you think that the market's really delivering on that consumer nutrition expectation at this point? I think that we're getting there. I, I think I'll probably say this a few times on the podcast, but this is a journey. It's not just something we can make the switch to immediately. Um, so I think like kind of going back to it, the motivation is to reduce intake of animal-based foods, but we're getting there, I would say. It's definitely a journey. The first step, I think, for a lot of us was to just create an alternative to these animal-based foods. So that's step one. I think, like you said, we're doing a good job of getting to the taste and the novelty, but from the health and nutrition point of view, thinking about plant-based and flexitarian or even vegetarian diets, a lot of the science that comes out that shows people who consume plant-based diets are more healthy and have a lower risk for chronic disease, those, those people are consuming plants. So they're eating more vegetables, more fruits, more whole grains, and less processed meat. That's what's leading to their reduced disease risk. So it's, it can be hard to extrapolate those results of people who are eating plant-forward diets that have a lot of whole plants in them to the place we're at now where we're consuming a lot of plant-based alternatives to animal-based foods. There's less research out there. And I think from my perspective, it's kind of at a, a point where we have the power to determine the future there. How healthy are plant-based meat alternatives or dairy alternatives? That's kind of up to our industry to, to take responsibility for it and really keep nutrition front of mind. And let's stay on this nutrition aspect as well. I'm wondering if you have any kind of insights when consumers say that they're looking for health and wellness when they turn to plant-based. Is there anything specifically they're looking for, like lower fat content, cholesterol, et cetera, anything specifically that they're really targeting when they try one of these plant-based items out? I think 
a lot of people are trying to reduce their fat and their calorie intake, but uh, I would say a lot of times it's not very well articulated. So in consumer research we do where we ask, like, what are the components that are most important to you? Usually it's things like sugar, fat, calories, and protein. Sodium also comes up in there. Sodium is really challenging because people are aware of its link to health, but they are also aware that it's really hard to replace it while keeping taste where they want it. So you see it not not totally come up to the top like other nutrients like that. And I think we can continue down this line, kind of keeping that consumer viewpoint in mind. But I, like I said, I want to talk a little bit more about the health attributes of plant-based foods. Um, nutritionally, you know, how distinct would you say they are from meat and or dairy products they're looking to emulate? I, I see this discussion a lot, especially on social media when I'm looking around, but it seems like a lot of people and myself included on this, you know, what are the major differences between a plant-based version of a burger, say, compared to a traditional burger? Is there a huge nutritional profile difference there? Yeah, there, there definitely is. I mean, if you just look at a plant and you look at a cow, you know, they don't look the same at all. And it, that goes down to their core biology. And I think it's something that we don't think about sometimes whenever we're making food is like, where does that food come from? And everything in the food we eat has a purpose in the plant or the animal that it exists in. It's like antioxidants are important for protecting the plant from environmental dangers and, and things like that. And sometimes that's perfectly linked to the health benefit it has in our body. We're basically just taking those nutrients from another plant or an animal and putting them in ourselves. Um, it's, it seems simple, but it's something that is hard to think about whenever you're eating and you know, you're eating a burger and you're not really thinking about where it comes from sometimes because you don't want to. <clears throat> um, but you know, that's reflected in, the, in their nutrient profiles. And there are a few things we could talk about here. So you have I think from a formulation perspective, this is really interesting because if you look at, let's say, a, a beef, let's say just like a steak, just because it's the closest to the actual meat that you'd be consuming or a chicken breast, like if you look at the ingredient label of that in a store, it's just going to be chicken or beef, but it's made of a lot of different things. There's protein and connective tissue and vitamins and minerals and water and all of these components that are in there that don't show up on an ingredient label. And basically what we're having to figure out in our industry is like, how do you rebuild that with plant components? So that's why you see really long ingredient labels. I am definitely not someone who thinks that a long ingredient declaration makes something unhealthy. Um, I think it's important to be critical of what you're reading instead of how long it is. But, you know, you're, you're having to rebuild it from scratch basically. So that's why you see these really long ingredient declarations on there. So that's one piece of it because you're trying to mimic something with something else, but then you have the nutrient profiles too. So let's say in meat, when you're consuming meat, you're getting a lot of protein, which most people are aware of, but you also get really important minerals like zinc and selenium and iron. Those are hard nutrients to find in plants. And I think, if we think about, all right, we're building plant-based alternatives, we know that the destination is to reduce use of, of animals in our food system. That's the goal is to transform our food system and make it more sustainable. Um, but 
we, we kind of have a choice here at this this tipping point is like how healthy do we want these replacements to be and are we thinking about everything we need to be kind of at this precipice of this trend moving forward and I think what a lot of people aren't thinking about is these nutrient differences that you brought up. So I mentioned what you find in animals, but in plants, you'll find a lot more fiber, which is good for our digestive health. You'll get more antioxidant vitamins like vitamin C, you get some vitamin E and things like nuts. So you get an entirely different nutrient profile and a healthy diet is composed of a lot of different types of foods because we need all of these different nutrients. So I think it's it's really important for us to think about what are we taking out of the diet and what are we putting back in and where are the gaps that we're creating there? Yeah, I think in my own personal experience, you know, vitamin B12 comes to mind for me immediately, right? One of those things that's a little bit harder to find in the plant-based diet compared to, you know, if you're having any kind of meat in there. But taking a look at that, you know, what kind of vitamins do you think plant-based consumers also really need to look at when they cut these, you know, diets in favor of plant-based offerings? I mean, we could even flip that around too, because I saw this week on Food Institute, we published a piece on the carnivore diet, which I joked, it was like my arch nemesis diet at this <laughs> yeah. point, but right. You're seeing that, I guess, keto, right? Keto is probably a more sustainable version of that, that people are also involved in, but you know, how serious is this nutritional deficiency kind of aspect? If you're going on one of these diets, when you take a look at them, you know, is this something that's a, going to be a serious problem for people in their health? I think like on an individual basis, it's something like you said, B12 is a perfect example of like anyone who sees a dietitian and talks about being on a vegetarian or a vegan diet, that that's the first thing a dietitian will think of is you need to supplement your diet with B12 because you just can't get it from plants. But there's other things where, like I mentioned, iron, zinc, selenium, those are things that we already don't consume enough of when, when we're eating meat. So if you look at the typical American diet, you can look at their average nu nutrient intakes versus recommendations. Iron is a perfect one where most people consume below the daily recommendation for iron. So if you already have a low consumption and you're making it even lower via replacement of animal foods with plant foods, that's where it can become serious especially at a public health level. Another example I like to use is iodine, which is not something a lot of people think about, but you know, we don't use a whole lot of iodized table salt in the United States due to decades of, of people pushing for lower salt consumption. The main source of iodine in the US diet is through non-organic milk, cow's milk, because it's used to disinfect the teats of the cows. So if you are replacing cow's milk with plant-based milk, you could be setting yourself up for an iodine deficiency, like population-wide, you know, it can be a much more prevalent thing. So I think from my perspective, these are really important things for us to be thinking about, especially as food producers, where, you know, those adding those things into a formulation, really just thinking of the need to do it is the hardest part. Obviously, some minerals have off notes and things like that that can be hard to formulate around. But I think, like, I keep emphasizing it, we have a responsibility as food producers to make sure that we are nurturing the beliefs that consumers have about the food we're producing from an ethical point of view, but also from a regulatory point of view, 
from a legal point of view, protecting yourself from class action lawsuits and things like that. Yeah, and one of the things I'd like to talk about a little bit here too is just kind of ranking these plant-based alternatives on, you know, a health scale. And I would say most consumers at this point, you know, for the last 10 years plus have been familiar with alternative milks, typically in the form of nut milks, but now we also have oat milks and some other varieties out there. So that category is definitely expanding and also now includes other parts of the dairy aisle, right? Including yogurts. Uh, I think the more, you know, recent one is really obviously, you know, the beyond and impossible burgers, which really took the world by storm at the start of the pandemic. But you also have that, uh, you know, plant-based chicken aspect as well, which has been, you know, in the freezer case for a little bit longer, somewhere in between those two. And I know you have seafood and there's some other ones, but I would say those are probably the big three. As far as like as a replacement, you know, how do you see all three of those? You know, are they all kind of equal when it comes to nutritional replacement? How do you see those? And, you know, what would you say is the most useful kind of switch if you were going to make one? That's a, it's a hard question. I would say, I'll emphasize that it's a journey again. And I think like the ones that have been around the longest are usually doing the best. So if you think about Beyond or Impossible, they do a good job of adding iron and kind of taking care of some of the nutrients that are found in in beef and replacing it into their products. I think the industry as a whole is extremely focused on protein right now. Like that's the way companies will compete with each other on a nutrition level. Getting protein higher is the goal. That's a good first step, but I think there's a lot more that that we need to be doing. We need to be thinking about keeping sugar content low, keeping fat content low, keeping salt content low, and also thinking about some of the vitamins and minerals you find in chicken or seafood, because they'll be very different. Fish is a great example. Like Fish are part of dietary recommendations for the healthy fats you find in them. So if we're creating plant-based fish, you know, the, the fat profile is a really important thing to think about. But then you have the, the really hard part where, you know, I can talk about what we should be doing, but executing it is extremely challenging. So even on the protein level, like it's hard to get protein as high as animal-based foods because we're, we're using plants, which are inherently lower in protein. And then the more protein you put in there, the more flavor off notes you get. I mean, even if you source pea protein from different suppliers, you'll get different off flavors and things like that. So I think from a food production standpoint, it makes sense that we haven't solved all of this because this is a very challenging thing to solve. Um, and that's why you get products with high sugar or high salt, because you're kind of, the taste is the goal to get people to buy it. People aren't going to buy something that doesn't taste good. So you're adding in these nutrients that may be linked to chronic disease, but you're kind of adding them in there to compensate for the protein. So I think it's, I keep saying it's a journey. Like what we need to figure out is how to balance all of those things together, the taste, the texture, the, even the, the cooking process of them, plus the nutrition. Um, and like I said, it's definitely not easy. It's definitely interesting, right? You know, in my eight years here with the Food Institute, I've never seen a product category kind of explode as quickly as plant-based has. And to your point, you know, 
I know we're kind of at an inflection point with the food system, but I think for a lot of plant-based production, you know, the competition is really just starting at this point. You know, we really, like I said, we brought up some of the big names. You got Oatly, you have, well, even Chobani, right? Moving into the plant-based space a little bit, you have Impossible, you have Beyond, but you also have a ton of new competitors that have really kind of come onto the scene. And I'm thinking, you know, even like JBS has their own plant-based imprint. Now you have, you know, Raised and Rooted by Tyson. So with all these new entrants into the market, you know, I, I do believe that to your point, you know, people are not going to buy something if it doesn't taste great. But I think we're getting to a point with all these competitors that taste is going to become a little bit more ubiquitous. And I think people are going to start looking more for that nutritional profile when all the products start tasting, you know, I don't want to say the same, but that taste equivalency kind of comes into play. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think like right now is a really good time if a company wants to be diversified from their competitors. I think thinking about these micronutrient differences and things like that and and showing that you're a company who cares for the full nutrition spectrum instead of just protein i think that's a way companies can differentiate themselves and also like it it keeps going back to the ethics of it is you know if people are choosing these foods because they think they're healthier we should make sure that they are at least as healthy if not healthier um, and there's multiple examples i always use the like the low fat trend where the whole industry went all in on the low fat trend only for consumers to find out like, oh, these, these foods aren't actually making me healthier. There's more sugar in here. There's more calories. I'm not losing the weight I thought I would. You get huge backlash and mistrust of our industry through mistakes like that. So I think like as a trend is starting, it's really important to get out in front of it and think about these things. Yeah, it really makes me think, you know, where's the B12 fortified plant-based burger for a, a consumer like me, right? You know, I would really be interested in a product like that for my own diet. But I do think that a lot of other consumers might not be fully aware, but like definitely a big market opportunity for a company to step out and say, hey, we are fortifying this, right? So do you think that that's really like a big opportunity? And maybe what other kind of vitamins and nutrients would you think, you know, these animal product analogs could kind of like absorb into their product? Is there any other item other than just B12 that you think, you know, a producer might be looking and say, Hey, this is an item that consumers need in their diet and it's not really on the market yet. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I know we're getting down into the the details of nutrition here and it, I do want to just clarify. Sometimes there are products that like, like not every single plant-based product needs to, to think about these things, but like there will be consumer bases who only choose it for novelty or only choose it for taste or things like that. But I think by and large, our industry needs to be looking at nutrition and like some examples of what you just brought up besides B12. I, I love to use dairy as an example. I know that it's been around longer and some companies have figured it out, but in the U.S. diet, dairy is the top contributor or one of the top three contributors of really important nutrients in our diet, like potassium, vitamin D, vitamin A, calcium, protein probiotics if you're looking at yogurt and that's a lot of products and if we're again replacing all of these dairy foods with plant-based alternatives that don't consider these things you're creating nutrient gaps in people's diet who are trying actively trying to become healthier so for dairy for sure potassium vitamin d vitamin a and calcium are really important for plant-based meat you have iron you have zinc, you have selenium, um, some products. I know I'm, for dairy, I mentioned iodine. 
all of these things are important to think about, but I think it, the first step is just kind of going to a resource. So the USDA has a nutrient database where you can type in a food and it'll give you all of the nutrients in that food for a serving. That's where I always start. I'll just go type in chicken breast into that and see what nutrients are even in here. And I think once, one thing you could do is just mimic that in your product and have that be a standard of practice for your products so that a consumer never needs to worry about that kind of thing. But I think another thing you can do is instead of trying to mimic the nutrition of a product you're replacing, like plants and animals are entirely different and plants have their own health benefits. So whole grain and oat milk or oat-based oat uh, dairy alternatives are a great example where you can use an oat base that still has whole grain in there. I think less than uh, 5 or 10% of Americans consume the daily whole grain recommendation. So you can also introduce a new health benefit and lean on the health benefits inherent in plants. Yeah, it's an actually an interesting kind of take that I had not thought about before. But yeah, there is, seems to me, right, the big time opportunity to just say, hey, you know, this is a replacement for your daily milk. And by the way, you know, it has a ton of whatever vitamin you want to bring up from the product formulation, right? So maybe there's an opportunity to kind of switch your messaging and show, hey, this is a healthy alternative. And here's why. Maybe it's not exactly the same nutritional profile as milk, but, it, you know, it's providing a bunch of essential vitamins and nutrients. And there's an opportunity there for your product to basically stick out in the market by saying, hey, you know, this is exactly what we're pulling from plants. We're leaning into that messaging anyway as a plant-based product. So why not kind of, you know, enjoy the fruits of those uh, labors, you know, no pun intended there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, it's really shifting your focus from like, what is this product not to what is it? And I think like even oat, it doesn't need to be a dairy alternative. It can be a new way to consume oats, which people know are healthy to begin with. So it's just a shift in thinking the product is the same, but the way you market it and talk about it can be different. Yeah, and one of the things I want to talk about a little bit here too, now that we're talking about it, you know, I think one of the major detractors for plant-based is that people would argue that it's not exactly fresh, you know, that it's a processed food. And if you compare that to a steak or a chicken breast, you know, I think there's an, an argument to be made that, you know, do we want to have these foods kind of, you know, as part of our diet all the time. So I was just wondering your take on this with the processing aspect. Do you think that it fundamentally makes a product unhealthy or is it kind of like that nutritional label aspect you brought up earlier where it's, you know, you got to get a little bit more into the weeds on, you know, what's happening with the product itself before you can kind of make a determination on that? Yeah, I would go back to my answer of it's up to us whether it's healthy or not. I don't think just something being processed doesn't make it inherently unhealthy. Um, but you know, there are studies coming out, there's, there's not a, a fully agreed upon definition of what processed is, but there are a few attempts, but there are studies coming out linking things like plant-based meat alternatives, tagging them as ultra processed foods and finding that they lead to higher consumption of things like sodium, fat, and sugar and things like that. So there's a risk here. There's an inherent risk from both a health perspective, but also just kind of protecting a, a trend that a lot of companies, you know, it comes down to, to what they can sell and the money. Like you you kind of want to make sure you're protecting the health of the trend and avoiding bad press like that. So I think 
like the things we talked about today, those are the things to be thinking about so that whenever the next study comes out, they don't find those things. They don't find that there's higher sodium or fat or sugar content, and they find that there's improved nutrition through, like we talked about, more whole grain intake. That would be a great study result to find is that people who eat um, plant-based dairy alternatives have a higher whole grain intake. So I think it is it is definitely up to us to think about these things, and it definitely is a journey of kind of considering all the pieces we need to consider of novelty, speed to market, taste and texture, cooking experience. But I think nutrition needs to be a strong bedrock of all of these things because it is the main reason people are going to this trend beyond the sustainability aspect. Yeah, and I think it's actually an advantage for those processors because they have the ability to basically iterate, right? You know, if you're going to be having a steak, you know, obviously millions of years of evolution and then also farming helping to get to that point. But, you know, it seems like at least most of the plant-based products I take a look at, they seem more interested in innovation and iterating and kind of taking a step to improve it. So would you think that's uh, like, you know, maybe not major, but definitely a benefit for these companies as they're kind of developing these things? They don't necessarily have to stick to the same formula over and over again. I think that's a huge benefit. And I think we'll see a lot more of of that kind of form-based innovation that are just novel, new novel products that aren't an alternative. So maybe we'll shift away from just making plant-based beef or chicken and we'll just make new formats of plants you know we'll have an oat patty or something that is it's not trying to mimic beef or chicken it's just its own thing and kind of links into rather than the novelty piece and the the kind of replacing the animal product is just sinks its teeth into new it is protecting the planet it's healthier all of those things so I think we'll see a lot more of that coming up. And I just have two kind of quick closing questions for you, Nathan. And the first would be, is there any plant-based category that you think is really going to take off in 2022? It doesn't necessarily have to be this year, but what do you think is the next frontier as far as you know plant-based protein? Is there a specific product category you're seeing any kind of innovation in right now? I think there's a lot of companies trying to get into seafood, and it's a really hard thing to solve because of sometimes even things like the color of the meat you know if you think about uh tilapia or something like that like to get a plant protein that matches that color is hard to begin with let alone match the taste and the texture and things like that so i think that's where a lot of companies are trying to get to you also have the push to to solve this due to things like overfishing and a lot of that uh the push to kind of think about our ocean as part of our ecosystem for trapping carbon and really protecting our planet. So you have those two pieces coming together. So I would really look forward to a lot more innovation in that space. And I think what you'll see is a lot of products focusing on taste and texture first, because they're trying to solve that challenge and then moving to that. I know like cheese is another example of kind of balancing the nutrition of it with with products that are really easy to use at a large scale so moving beyond like consumer cheese that you'd buy to like how do we get cheese in the form that is used in food service like quesos and and slices that go on burgers and have all of those forms and functions that work properly so i think you'll get those two things coming out quite a bit 
Um, we're, we're doing a webinar right now on the Cary Health and Nutrition Institute looking at things like this of like, where is the plant-based journey going and what is the innovation that we want to get and what are the technical hurdles that are getting in our way there? Like what needs to be solved as an industry to get to that new phase of plant-based and our trend there? Yeah. And I guess the last question I'll ask here then is just, you know, what would, what advice would you give to a company that's either looking to enter or expand in the plant-based space in 2022? What would you say they should be focusing on, you know, with their product development, et cetera, if they're trying to get into this space, like I said, in, in this year? I would say that there's a couple of things that I would recommend. Number one is it's really hard to recreate products using entirely new ingredient systems. So I would I would recommend that they lean on their experts. So like different suppliers or different ex external experts in academia who, who work on this emerging science, because like I said, even the taste of a pea protein can vary by the supplier you get it from. And so I would say leveraging the experts that you have, both from a market perspective, nutrition, our DNA and application science, especially for smaller emerging companies there's a lot of expertise out there and sometimes it can just be hard to, to think of where to go to go ask for it. Um, so I would keep an open mind about that and then just broadly always remember why people are doing something and solve that problem instead of solving what, what they're saying and what they're asking for because that's how you can protect the integrity and long-term health of your products and the consumer, protect yourself legally. It all goes back to kind of nurturing the good intentions of consumers they have when they're choosing something related to health and making that true for them. All right, Nathan, I know we talked a lot about the journey today, but it seems like our journey today on this podcast is coming to a close. So I definitely want to thank you uh, for spending some time with us. You know, it's not an easy conversation to have. I think it's a little bit you know, polarized depending on which camp you're in. But I do think that today, this was a really nice balanced conversation about kind of where we are, where we can go and what the future will look like. So I definitely want to thank you again. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was great talking with you. And just as one last thing, you know, for anybody that's listening into the episode, they might want to learn a little bit more about your work, what, what you're doing, and maybe even a little bit more about, you know, the nutritional stuff we talked about today. Where should they go? Um, yeah, I would, I would recommend they check out the Cary Health and Nutrition Institute. So that website is khni.cary.com. And I would also keep a lookout for an ebook coming from our carry marketing team called Stepping Up Taste and Plant-Based, which is more focused on what do consumers expect from this trend and how can we deliver on that? Perfect. And we'll share the relevant links as they're available. And if that white paper is still not available by the time we go to the airwaves here, we'll make sure to share that on foodinstitute.com as well. So you'll be able to find a link in our newsletters, et cetera, when the time comes. But once again, Nathan, I really want to thank you for your time today. Excellent conversation. And I hope we get to do it again in the future. Yeah, me too. It was great talking to you, Chris. And I think that'll do it for us this week on the Food Institute podcast. Once again, I want to thank Nathan for his time today and also to our sponsor, Kerry Group. We'll catch you next time. This is Chris Campbell signing off. Music.